This is Karen Hunter, and welcome to The Hub. I was reading something uh, a day or two ago about Barney's. I used to be a clothing salesman at Barney's. And I used to wait on um, um, actors and models and what have you. And Tom Ford, yeah, he was with uh, Ford Modeling Agency. And he would periodically come in and he'd say, you don't want to be a model. And being the mercenary that I was at that point, I said, how much does it pay? $40 an hour. What? So I went out and I got a uh, portfolio, put it together, and um, I think it was Black Beauty, not Black Beauty, um, Grace Del Marco Modeling Agency <clears throat> on 42nd Street. And I got with them. <clears throat> What Tom failed to tell me that $40 an hour wasn't a 40 hour week. <laughs> and I started doing um, Sears, Monkey Montgomery Ward catalog stuff. That, that was the basic, that was the, what's the word? Um, <clears throat> the foundation, if you will. <clears throat> then I started getting um, liquor ads, but I was still working at um, at uh, Barney's, 17th Street. <clears throat> I found out that Ebony Magazine was doing a um, hiring people for the Ebony Fashion Show, and I auditioned, and I got the job, and. Uh, Went to Chicago. I, I lied. I said, you know, have you done um, um, runway modeling? Oh, of course. <laughs> Go to Chicago and <clears throat> for the wardrobe and whatnot. This was, that's back when they were doing 79 cities in 90 days on a bus. <clears throat> that was singularly the largest, most fun experience in my early career. I didn't know what runway was about. And we had a kind of a dress rehearsal in Gary, Indiana. And I remember watching the girls go out and did it halfway down and did turn around and went to the end of the ramp, turn around. I can do that, but I, I can't do it the way they do it. And to this day, I don't know what I did, but when I went out, the place went crazy. And for years after, I can remember going around the country doing promos or whatever, and people would say, I, rem <laughs> I know you did Shaft, but I remember you from the Ebony Fashion Fair. <laughs> 
Oh, you're muted. Okay, unmute, unmute. Good morning. Good, Good morning. Everything. Good everything. Doctor. Good demonstration of the difference between the social structure and the governance structure. I wanted to start there. It's one of the last interviews, um, and it's an hour long. I'll drop it in the Nubia chat because I think it gives us, you know, the broad spectrum of a person, not just through the camera lens, not just through our imaginations, not just through how Hollywood depicts us, but the fullness of a Richard Roundtree. Um, what a beautiful and and Ebony, which we've talked about, John Johnson. How many people co have come through Ebony? How many? careers have been erected, not just the, the centerfolds and the jet super, supermodel that so beauty. many of you had. Yeah, beauty of the week that so many of you had on your walls growing up. Black uh, <laughs> man barbershop wallpaper. That's <laughs> <laughs> cultural yeah. meaning making. Yes, indeed. But for some of us, the first makeup, you know, uh, the first time we've seen ourselves, you know, all, everyone that's free to paint, like obscure people, black famous people, you know, through that and Richard Roundtree. Well, they call it black famous. We call it governance. Thank you. Yes, I gotta I yeah. gotta really work on my black language. Still assumes that this I, I prefer white famous, like Pete, whatever. I don't even know that I know their names, but I like messing them up because that shows you the relative importance. Of yes, them. yes, yes, yes. You know, it's a lot of work, Dr. Carr, to every day, every day. All of the effed up things <laughs> that have been stuffed away into our psyches, you know, like yes. just stuff down just uh it's it's amazing we don't vomit every day like from being sick but we do it's called commenting in social media on things like sexy red and dwight howard it's vomit okay when you ingest mess you vomit mess and that's what we do oh man <laughs> how are you I'm really well uh, uh, that was beautiful how are you feeling this morning today this I'm yeah, yeah, this evening, wherever people are in the world, I'm I'm grateful is what I am. I'm grateful. I'm extreme gratitude. I get up and I get to be here, you know. I, I get to be it. here. And you know, for some people, it's so unusual to have a space where 190 straight episodes, uh, a whole platform called narrative, and then Nubia was birthed and during a pandemic, uh, when you know the world was sitting down and also uh, made and forced to reflect on some things. We created something that is so beautiful, uh, that when people come in it, you know, they, they don't leave and, and folk who are exposed to it, whether it's a Mike Harriet coming in, doing, doing drapedomania or talking about his book, you know, wherever they go in the world afterwards, it's like Nubians show up, you sure. know, and, and and that's the kind of community I want to be in where, you know, we don't have to agree on everything. You know, everybody's not on the same page in terms of the electoral process and, you know, whether we like what we like, food. You know, I know there's a whole okra fight going on in the chat uh, right now about okra. And, you know, <laughs> we're going to battle Dukes versus uh, Miracle Whip. You know, we, we have some stupid fights, you know, over, you know, mayonnaise. But right. Ult ult right, ultimately, it's family, though. It's what we do. Absolutely. Wow. Absolutely. And you're right. Everybody, I, I was sitting out reading last night and uh, before I came back over to the house and brother passed me, uh, Dr. Lamont Simmons this is our first time meeting. He's a, uh, uh, he teaches on the faculty at the University of the District of Columbia here in the district. And he's like, you know, I'll be there in the morning. I don't miss either time. And we started talking about his work. Uh, he has a master's in social work as well. He's a social worker by training and went back and got a doctorate. And he's training the next generation of social workers. 
because he's, he's been at UDC for just this, this is his first semester. He came from another university. And uh, I mean, but to, to, to what you're raising and what Mike is raising and all of us, we're everywhere. You know, ran to a brother who um, watches us here in the YouTube side. Um, he's a veteran, his son and his nephew. His son is already over there in the Gulf and on one of the destroyers and his nephew is in standing, got standing orders coming out of Norfolk, Virginia. And at any moment could be shipped out into that war. And so what What people, you know, we were focusing on Israel, but there's a Syrian Irani, Iranian uh, thing happening as well. Uh, uh, and, the, and the United States just struck, just uh, just struck in, uh, in, I think it's Syria. You know, they call themselves fighting Hezbollah, but they're not fighting anyone. Joe Biden and uh, this new speaker, Johnson, they're not fighting anyone. It's other people's children, including the brother I saw who's with us right now. So I told him we'll, we'll offer a prayer for you, brother, because, you know, as is often the case with these cowards, uh, they start wars, but other people fight them and other people die. So, you know, there's. So what do we do with that? Right. Um, mm, yeah. Because I had someone call up yesterday. um very passionate about you know being involved she's somebody that letter writes and door knocks and she's out there and she said i cannot vote for a war criminal i cannot vote for it no she she called him a, a person that supports genocide mm -hmm. and i said i understand that um i understand it completely mm -hmm. why morally i'm but i said render unto caesar what is caesar's this is not a, a moral uh choice but I don't, I, you know, in even saying that, you know, I feel like I totally get why people, you know, cannot like they couldn't vote for Hillary. You know, I, I get it. But the alternative, you know, and I don't. How do we how do we have this conversation without it sounding like, you know, for, you can't shame me. You know, it's like, no, it's just like long enough to, to know that, you know, not voting is a vote and that people who hate you will absolutely show up to vote because they know what they're voting for. They're voting to keep you in your place. Mike Johnson is a signal to what it is they really feel and I feel about us uh, with a black son that shows up in none of his pictures. Family. Uh, yeah, does he have a black son? He said he had a black son, Dr. Carr. I've been looking for him. That's different, right? He said he had a black son, right? But black son, sons. One's black, one's white. I right. looked at all the family photos with it. Right. I, I I was like, wait. Okay. The world is black. The world is black. The world is white. Except we ain't seen your black son, Mike. Now, you're a blow-dried white nationalist, a clan-adjacent white nationalist, so why the hell would I believe anything you say? You've been looking for him, haven't you? And you, 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 you're the best somebody, somebody found a picture of him. Did they? With, but he's not in the family photos. Okay, is he in the photo? With, oh, oh, that's right. That's the one him standing up in between the two of them, right? The, the, yeah. Right, right. And so for all we know, he's uncomfortable. Looking really uncomfortable. Yeah, because somebody uh, said it looked like a scene from Get Out. You exactly, and you've probably seen more of the reporting than I've seen. The one or two things I saw on the subject as it relates to that particular photo was also accompanied with narrative. He had been asked whether or not he was he, they had formally adopted him. The answer was no. So is it conservatorship? Is it is it's gonna be a Michael Orr situation ten years from now? He just like, over to the house. Oh, he's just there. So yeah. now Did son, see, so see, because that's what you know. Hey, son, come over, sit down. Yeah, you in Louisiana? Don't get cute with us, Mickey. You live in Louisiana, baby. 
No, we could, we call him MAGA Mike. What everyone is calling him. Yeah, I mean, Mag that's what said. He was so happy. He's we'll MAGA Mike. I'm calling Speaker of the House. I mean, on the same day that the New York Times put Richard Roundtree below the fold Thursday, the Wiley mm -hmm. Dub Sharp Shaft we have at the top of the fold, Hakeem Jeffries giving the gavel to the Klan. Damn it. So the whole point is, you know, and New York Times, Katie Edmondson says, Representative Mike Johnson of Louisiana won election on Wednesday to become the 56th Speaker of the House of Representatives as Republicans worn down by three weeks of infighting and dysfunction turned to a little-known conservative hardliner beloved by the far right. To end their paralysis. The elevation of Mr. Johnson, 51, an architect of the effort to overturn 2020 election and a religious conservative opposed to abortion rights, homosexuality, and gay marriage, further cemented the Republican Party's lurch to the right. So these white boys got tired. Matt Gates, shout out to Lurch. I'm sorry, shouldn't do that. Shout out to Frankenstein. Sorry, shouldn't do that. Shout out to young girl loving Mike Ga Matt Gates. Let me just be accurate. No sense in doing metaphor. Young girl loving Matt Gates to hold the line. What is it, journey or was it foreign? Hold the line. Love doesn't always on time. Love isn't always on time. You love white nationalism. And they there are no moderates in the white nationalist party in the federal legislature. There are only white nationalists. And they lined up and saluted a blow-dried white nationalist, Jim Jordan with a coat, Donald Trump's pawn. So let's dance. So, Professor. Mm. On the same day that the, the, the papers reported that and reported the transition of Richard Roundtree at 81. Sound like you asked your students the same question I asked my students. Do you know Richard Roundtree? What, what did your students say, Professor Hunt? They did not. <laughs> no one knew him. And you know what's sad? You know, I'm at an age now. I, I saw a share report that her boyfriend, who's 36, mm doesn't get her references <laughs> and i was laughing i said okay i'm speaking oh. metaphorically she's literally references okay yes <laughs> her references another way oh. <laughs> he doesn't get her her, her her historical references yes you know she's bringing up ralph cramden i guess or the beverly hillbillies or, or richard roundtree I don't know what conversations they have. I don't know what their pillow talk is like, but okay. apparently the, the things that she's referencing, he doesn't well, have a clue. So Sheer is laying on the pillow and says, uh, gypsies, tramps, and thieves. <laughs> what? I got you, babe. What's that? Wow. This is what happens. But you know, I gave my students a pop quiz. Did you? Time. Okay. So when I walked in. Give it to us. Well, it's easy. I mean, okay. we're all going to pass it. Okay. Fact, I'm going to give you the same pop quiz I gave oh, you. Oh, wait a minute. Let me put it. No, 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 no. Don't even. No, 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 no. You ain't got to do nothing but just sit there. You are. You know the answer. So I walked in. Students are there, all there. And I so I'm, you know, I pulled out the book. because We're going to get into the text. And this is my Black Aesthetics class. So I got some flexibility to bring this in. In fact, we use Richard wait, Roundtree. Hold for a second. What is Black Aesthetics? Oh, Black Aesthetics. It's, well, we call it Africana Aesthetics. We don't even use the word. Well, I'll spend the first three weeks. <laughs> taking the word aesthetics and dissembling. Aesthetics oh. is a branch of Western philosophy that is devoted to the study of and description of what about art makes it good or bad? What makes a thing valuable in art? How do you assess value? What is a good piece of art, a bad piece of art? How do you, so aesthetics is, is like, how do you, the science, well, the philosophy of perception, all of that's trash. We put that in the social structure quickly and go to governance and I start asking them about cultural meaning making. The real, the real work is cultural meaning making. How do we value what we value? How do we say, how do we assess value in cultural productions? So that's really what it's about. So of course, film, dance, music, art, all forms is the subject. 
right now we're on the black arts movement. We're reading um we're reading a book called the Battle Habit, right? The, oh, that's the so valuable. You yeah. need to, to teach that in Nubia. Well, we could do that too. Yeah, sure. And then everybody comes in, right? Because because film's a big part of it. Sure, absolutely. Uh James Smethurst is the book we're reading now, the Black Arts Movement. We start Clive Taylor's The Mask of Art next week. And before that, you know, we've read Robert Ferris Thompson, Flash of the Spirit, a lot of things, some of the things I bring into the intro class. But so I came in and I said, okay, before we move to the text, because uh, we talked about the Black Arts Movement in the South and in the West on Thursday, uh, I said, um, I got a question. It's a pop quiz question. What? Okay. Here's a simple question. Who is the man who would risk his neck for his brother, man? Silence. I said, hold on, let me do it again. Who is the man who would risk his neck for his brother man? <laughs> Silence. And what's the answer, bro? Shaft. You damn right. <laughs> None of them kids. <laughs> Finally, an older student who's an African studies major who was sitting there, he said, Jack? I said, yes. Can you dig it? Right on. Yeah. <laughs> right on. No question. So, of course, that led to pulling up Gordon Clark. Pulling up Richard Roundtree, pulling up Isaac Hayes, pulling up Gordon Park saying, I picked this guy for a reason. Pulling up Isaac Hayes coming out of stacks out of uh, West Tennessee saying, Gordon uh, Gordon Parks came to me and said, I need some music for when he comes out the subway. So he, he, he sends him the rushes. He sends him. And Isaac Hayes said, you know, I was playing with this wah-wah pedal. And we had a rhythm. We didn't know what we was going to do with. I went in the studio. We got together. I did all that stuff in two hours. And then I said, you know, people talk about patriarchy, but you got to understand that line. He's a complicated man, but no one understands him but his woman. And his sister's in the back, John Shaft. And then I said, so so what else haven't y'all seen? And then we went on the grand tour. What a I mean, yeah, we went on the grand tour across 110th Street, Willie Hutch with Yafet Kato, Fred DeHammer Williamson, Three the Hardway, Pam Greer, Tamara Johnson, Jim Brown, Jim Kelly, Tam I mean, Calvin Lockhart. None of these names. But then what do we do? You know, we teachers. You got to take what people know and connect it to what they don't know. You know, Notorious B.I.G.? Yeah. Biggie Smalls? Yeah. Let's go to Bill Cosby and... Sydney Portier. Now here, 40th Street Mac versus Biggie Smalls, John Amos versus Calvin Locke. Oh my God! Okay, let's pull up the Mac. Let's look at Max Julian and that scene when the sister comes in and said, "I choose you," and then he said, "I'm sorry, Mr. Pretty Tony, your B chose me." This is straight patriarchy. But now, do you understand Snoop? Oh my God! Yeah, that's all they were watching. They never, they never seen the players ball. I said, "But y'all are, y'all are 18, 19, 20, 21, 22 years old." But and, and your the whole artifice of your moment in cultural meaning making is built on this stuff, but they call it black exploitation, the social structure. Why do they call it black exploitation when Pam Greer comes at her afro and shoots the white boy? Why do they call it black exploitation when the third in the Shaft trilogy is Shaft in Africa, form filmed in Ethiopia? Why is it black exploitation? Is it really? I said, now I know one that y'all know if you've never seen it. You may not ever get rich. Let me tell you, it's better than digging a ditch. <laughs> there ain't no telling who you might meet. <laughs> Maybe even a Indian chief working at the... And then they sang. Oh, y'all know that one. Did you ever see it? No. A couple of people. What happened? My daddy had it on. My mama played it. In other words, if they've seen it at all, it's because... 
the people in their family why and again and it shocked them to find out that the author of the shaft novels and there are a number of shaft novels including a novel called shaft among the jews <laughs> believe <What>? you, absolutely <laughs> these are the novels ernest tidyman is the white man who created the shaft character wrote all the novels when Gordon Parks got the got got the Shaft uh, novel, they wanted to make it into a movie. He thought, okay, this guy Tidyman, he must have ripped this off from a black guy. Because Ernest Tidyman's thing was, I'm tired of looking at white heroes. I want a black hero. I want a black hero. Mm. And I'm saying that's cool. If you want a black hero, just go look through Africana cultural meaning making. We've been writing black heroes in the, in the United States at least since Martin Delaney wrote Blake in the 1850s. You don't get cute with it. You ain't discovered nothing. But anyway, I, I said I have to say that the students, like your students, they didn't know who was the man who would risk his neck for his brother, man. <laughs> Shaft. <laughs> I love how Gordon Parks talks about Shaft, too. Gordon Parks said, you know, when he was in London, I think it was a place he, he was at a... First of all, he said when they debuted in New York, as you know, I mean, a lot of us in here know, but when he debuted in New York, his son called him and said, Dad, I think you need to come now here. Why? He said, I didn't know whether it was going to be a big hit. I figured it's going to be. He said, there are lines outside the theater. They got to show it again and again. And then they took it to London. He said, I don't know if it's going to fly in London. So he goes over there and one of the reporters asks him, he says, well, Shaft, Shaft, what does Shaft mean? He said, Shaft is like up yours. <laughs> Shaft, like even the name Shaft is Shaft. Yeah. You damn me. I mean, it was just brilliant. You know, it was a moment. It was a moment for us. I, you know, we grew up, I, I want to maybe call it the golden era. Uh I, I remember I remember sitting in a smoky theater, packed down the Ormont in East Orange mm. to be the fish that saved Pittsburgh. There was not a seat available. <laughs> to sit in the back row, Dr. Carr, and it was smoky because you could smoke in the theaters and people were yelling. I mean, it was an experience that I still remember to this day. Mm -hmm. This, this, I, I feel a little sad that a lot of these young people, first of all, don't even know from whence they come, but also that kind of community, you know, East Orange, New Jersey, Ormont. Um, I believe the theater was owned by Dionne Warwick's husband then. Which was crazy. Like it was, it was crazy, right? You, you think about the convergence of like the community, the talent. John Amos is from that neighborhood too, and it's Whitney, of course, uh, my generation. But you, you know, I just remember sitting in that packed theater. There's a little girl, smoke everywhere, and just <laughs> enraptured, you know. And Doc, Dr. J comes on the, you know, he was huge then, and um, the New Jersey Nets. Yes, you just think about all of you know all of the things you know going in the theater seeing Tamara Dobson and then wanting to you know do karate after okay. all the karate films you know six but foot all six foot two of her in in heels Cleopatra Jones but I mean you could spend all day in the theater for like nothing no money three movies back to back to back you didn't have to sneak in other movies they just played them and I'm sure our parents were like happy because you say to the movies yeah. Oh, man. Back, back memories. Thank you for that. No, yeah. thank you. Thank you. I mean, you, you're teaching us again. I mean, a Black-owned movie theater by somebody who's an international star, the husband of somebody who's an international star. We're going to provide this, and we're going to make this happen. And then all the people in, he say, smoke filled. Boy, so yeah, some of you young folk don't remember when you could smoke everywhere. The plane, the theater. was <laughs> smoking. I'm not going outside. You go outside. And you sitting there as a little girl. I, as you talk about, I can just see you in there. Bronchitis, emphysema, all everything. It's 
eyes watering. You know, oh, man. Uh, but I mean, but I mean, it just, it just really. And then, of course, they see that clip that you played with Richard Roundtree talking about working there, Barney's, and then getting the modeling gig. But the intervention is not an intervention of individuals. The guy didn't tell him that it wasn't a, a full work week. But guess what, Eunice Johnson. And, and 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 comes in, sweeps in from the Midwest, comes in there, John H. Johnson, Ebony Fashion Fair. And what you said reminds me of something that I witnessed um, when Mr. Johnson um, made the announcement of a donation to Howard University and they named the School of Communications for John H. Johnson. Um, and then after Mr. Johnson made transition, whatever financial challenges the family had, whatever they didn't feel the complete bequest, I guess there's still a John Johnson chair at the School of Communication, but they renamed it for Kathy Hughes. Uh, I would have probably advocated for the Johnson Hughes School. I mean, that would have been a beautiful pairing, but you know, who am I? I'm just somebody who deals with African people first and foremost, not necessarily the money. But at any rate, which is why I would never make a great college administrator. Um, in this era of universities aspiring to be hedge funds. But at any rate, Mr. Johnson came to Howard for it. They had a special convocation. I hadn't been there maybe two, three years. This was 20 some years ago. Maybe right at 20 years ago, a little bit more. Anyway, Mr. Johnson sat on the stage in a wheelchair, didn't move for almost all of the, the, the moment. But the reason I bring it up, the highlight of that day was when Mr. Johnson at the end, President Swigert, Pat Swigert was president of Howard at the time. They were getting ready to sing the alma mater and dismiss, and everybody was grateful. I mean, Lerone Bennett Jr. was there, you know, Dick Gregory Kane, Jesse Jackson, the whole, all the Chicago people came too. So it was this beautiful thing. At any rate, the highlight was right at the end, Mr. Johnson beckons from the side of the stage that he's on, and the president looks over and sees him. Back. He says, Excuse me. He went over and bent down. Listen to Mr. Johnson. He, he said something to him. He came back to the podium and said, Mr. Johnson wants to say something. And everybody was like, whoa, place was packed. Johnson got up out of his wheelchair. They wanted to help him. Nope. He walked across, came to the podium and said, I remember when my mother moved us from Arkansas to Chicago. I remember the, the small apartment, the accommodations. Very humble. I remember when I pawned my mama's furniture to start what became Johnson's publication. He said, I want to say one thing to you young people. He said, never forget that everything you will ever do in your life will be, have been made possible by somebody else's sacrifice. Thank you. That was his speech. You could have heard a pin drop. And then there was just this roar. <laughs> that, that hell of a lesson. Everything you would have been able to do in life would have been made possible by somebody else's sacrifice. He sat back down. But the speaker that day, the featured speaker was Bill Gray. Bill Gray, of course, y'all know William Gray, Bill Gray, William Gray III. If you ever come through Philadelphia on the train, it's going to pull into the William Gray III station, 30th Street Station in Philly. Of course, Bill Gray was for many years the pastor of Bright Hope Baptist Church in North Philly, right across from Temple University. And I'm mentioning this because in the context of Richard Roundtree, because Bill Gray said, well, it Richard Roundtree said in a different way. Bill Gray said, you know, when I was made the number three person in the leadership in the Democratic Party, so this is before Jim Clyburn had ascended to a similar rank, and of course, before Hakeem Jeffries, who gave the gavel to a Klansman uh, this week. But he said, I was the, that was the highest rank a black person had ever gotten in the United States House of Representatives. So that Sunday, I preached my normal sermon. I'm preaching at my pulpit. Bridal. 
He said, I had been on the cover that week of the New York Times, the, uh, the Washington Post. I've been on the cover of the, uh, the Wall Street Journal. I've been interviewed with all the major networks. And so as I got up, nobody mentioned it after I finished preaching. You know, I'm shaking hands, parishioners, we're talking, congregants, whatever, and nobody mentions it. He said, and he looked over at me where Mr. Johnson was sitting. He said, Mr. Johnson, that following week, you put me in jet. Or as we say in the black community, the jet, the article. <laughs> you had to use the. You in the jet. He put him in the jet. He said, then I preached the following Sunday after I'd been in the jet. Stand ovation. Everybody shaking my hand. Hey, man, congratulations. I'm at Richard Roundtree's observation. That, yeah, I know you were in Shaft, but I remember you from the Ebony Fashion Fair. This is a distinction between social structure and governance structure. Individuals don't beat institutions. Individual achievement is great. Shaft is a very important film in terms of that era that breaking through. Remember 1971, and we talked about this uh, summer before last, and we started talking about Stevie Wonder and Marvin Gaye and all the music that comes out, those, those soundtracks that accompany those movies, Sweet Sweetback's Badass Song, Melvin Van Peebles, and then you see Shaft, and of course Superfly. And all the, the, the films are one thing, the soundtracks for them are other things. Glass Night in the Pips with Claudine. Uh, I mean, you just name it. Come on, Donnie Hathaway, Come Back, Charleston Blue. I mean, all of these soundtracks that kind of score and, and undergird the work that is going on in the films to make it very different. Well, that's one thing. It's cultural meaning making of a sort, but it's been regulated in a social structure. You get away with what you think you can get away with. They call them black exploitation because sometimes the plots, many times the plots aren't well developed. Then there's this insurgent attempt to marry those social structure frameworks with some kind of governance sensibility. That's Portier and Cosby making those films, let's do it again, a piece of the action, you know, trying to figure out how to go, man and boy, Bill Cosby in the West. I mean, you know, Thomasina and Bushrod, we've talked about all this before, so we don't get into it right now, but I'm saying at that intersection, Roundtree and his comrades and colleagues, some of them trying to be insurgents like Fred Hammond Williamson, independent filmmaking, others like Jim Brown, who recently, of course, made transition, trying to enter that space and move in between the worlds. Richard Roundtree and Jim Brown, both in white action movies. So you see, you know, Jim Brown, Ice Station Zebra, you see uh, 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 Richard Roundtree in, what was it, Titanic or one of them uh, adventure movies where, you know, the boat sinks. And all. I mean, so you see them in all these films. But I'm saying all that to say that that's not governance in terms of black institutions. Richard Roundtree is in a position to make that leap, to be energized by that, because not only of his individual talent, but then an institutional platform allows him to continue to develop. And then another institutional platform, the, uh, the Negro Ensemble Theater. Negro Ensemble Company is where Cicely Tyson was and James Earl Jones and so many others in the shadow of the great white way. I won't get up and go over on the shelf over there and pick the book off and show it. But the point is that we talked about that and we talked about Cicely Tyson. You know, Richard Roundtree plays the Jack Johnson character in The Great White Hope before James Earl Jones immortalizes it on Broadway. Richard Roundtree played that role before James Earl Jones. But again, another institution, New Ensemble Company, Johnson Ebony Fashion Fair. These are institutions that allow individuals to develop and then they become stuck in our consciousness. So like, just like Bill Gray <laughs> said, man, it, my, my, my folk didn't know I was doing all that in that way until they, they put you put us in the jet. Mr. Johnson, Richard Roundtree said, people say, I know you did Shaft, but I remember you from the Ebony Fashion Fair. And of course, the Ebony Fashion Fair wasn't just a fashion show. 
It's sponsored by the Prince Hall Masons and the Elks. It's sponsored by the Order of the Eastern Star and the Alphas and the, and the Deltas and Sigma Gamma Rho and everybody else and by the local civic associations and the elected officials come and you're raising money. So you're also feeding institutions. It's a feedback loop for institutions. So, you know, here we are and we made it to 190. It's a beautiful thing. And thinking about Richard Roundtree, even in the context of what continues to go on and, 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 and unfold here in, in Israel and Palestine. When you think about Richard Roundtree and you hear that, that asked, who is the man who will risk his neck for his brother me? Well, the answer in the movie is Shaft, but the answer we have to ask ourselves is who, who will risk? At our limits, at our limits, who will risk? Here we are in the in the shadow of All Hallows Eve. People gonna be out here showing they behind. I seen some people out last night in all kind of various forms of costume. And I was walking up Georgia Avenue, headed over to campus to go to class, and I heard two brothers lamenting the fact that they can't give out candy no more, and the kids can't go trick or treating. Now these brothers, I would put them probably in their forties. Bro, man, I mean, we used to go get candy. Everybody knew each other. Yeah, you know, we get that candy. Yeah, man, can't give out candy now. I can't get no kids no candy. I mean, it was like. They were lamenting, really what they were lamenting is the breakdown of society. But it was fascinating hearing these two grown amen walking down the street. Having, we're in the shadow of All Hallows' Eve, where various European ways of knowing have taught people to fear your ancestors, fear the dead. And then, of course, just like a lot of duality, a lot of this kind of bifurcated thought, they want to balance it the following day with All Saints' Day, where you honor the ancestors. So you got to be scared of them or you got to honor them. Those are the two things, right? Yeah, that duality or that binary, huh? That either or, huh? Yeah, exactly. That dialectic, is it a dialectic? It's going to be resolved. Yeah, but once you resolve it, you're going to have another thing to oppose it. Opposition is at the heart of this cultural way of knowing, this way of knowing. All these ways of knowing are based on conflict. So, you know, who's going to intervene? Who's going to say no? Conflict cannot be at the center. Who's going to say that? Rosa Parks say, nah, nah. More and more people are saying nah. So he asked the question, who is the person who will risk their neck for the rest of us? It ain't Shaft. It's going to have to be us. And what will allow us to see our common humanity here is we are in session 190, over the arc now of several years, in the middle of a war that don't make no sense, except it makes perfect sense in a worldview where conflict is at the center instead of peace. Well, you know, I mean, there's so much. I mean, you know, for us, you know, we, we use this space to emphasize the importance of study and reflection and conversation leading to other forms of action, because those are actions, too. I was reading um, this anthology. This is a 400 some page anthology called Kingdoms of Olives and Ash. Writers confront the occupation. Mm. Uh, yeah, this is very, it's very hold, good. Hold that, up, hold that up again, please. Kingdom of Olives and Ash. Writers confront the occupation. A husband and wife team, uh, uh, Michael Chabon, who you know, of course, the novelist, the the writer. Um, also, um, his his partner, Ayelet Waldman, they're both Jewish. Uh, Waldman was actually born in Jerusalem, and she writes about that in here in the introduction. And there's a lot of people in here. I'm going to focus just on for a minute. Come on, their introduction, and on the second uh, person, Jacqueline Woodson, of course, our sister, the great children's author, young adult fiction and writer and historic, historical writer, Jacqueline Woodson. Wallman and, and Shabon say this. We didn't want to write, we didn't want to edit this book. 
We didn't want to write or even think in any kind of sustained way about Israel and Palestine, about the nature and meaning of occupation, about intifadas and settlements, about whose claims were more valid, whose suffering more bitter, whose crimes more egregious, whose outrage more, outrage more justified. Our reluctance to engage with the issue was so acute that for nearly a quarter of a century, we didn't even visit the place where Ayelet was born. Who has the luxury of not watching? Who has the luxury of not looking? Part of the, the impetus for the films of the 70s that the social structure labels black exploitation films Part of the impetus is we wanted to win on screen. Sweet back, hit the cat, escape, everybody's cheering at the end of Sweet Sweetback's badass song. Shaft in Africa poses as an Ethiopian in order to infiltrate a crime ring. Shaft's big score, the second of the three. I mean, in other words, what is Shaft doing? Shaft trying to clean up the neighborhood, even Superfly. You know, the, the scourge of drugs. Even as you see Freddie laying there, Curtis Mayfield, Freddie's dead. Freddie said, you know, Mayfield said, we can deal with rockets and dreams, but reality, what does it mean? Don't be misled. Just think of Freddie. Freddie's dead. In other words, we're grappling. Heron is a scourge in our community in 1971, We're coming back from Vietnam. Marvin Gaye has released What's Going On, convincing Barry Gordy that we can't just do the bubblegum stuff no more. I got to intervene. And of course, Steve Morris, the great Stevie Wonder, rewrites the whole DNA of Motown in many ways when he takes it off into another direction and album after album, Secret Life of Plants, Inner Vision, Songs in the Key of Life, 1970. This is where we are. And it's reflected in our cultural meaning making, our popular cultural meaning making. This is just independent filmmakers but in that work we are engaged in our cultural meaning making on a mass level in a way that we're not engaged now the proliferation of technology the the fracturing of the idea of centers of cultural production that we all consume mass production this is why again loving you and valuing you so much immensely really infinitely for you know saying no nah i'm going to help convene I'm going to make the call. And as people answer, we'll keep building. We need a space. We need spaces that we have. And so, you know, in many ways, Richard Roundtree, not the living Richard Roundtree, not the living Richard Roundtree in a way, because then, you know, then it gets complicated. You know, cat out of New Rochelle, New York, high school football star, ends up as a model and goes into the movies, you know, seeing his, his children, his families. I mean, you know, Richard Roundtree in life had white partners. So we say, we can't, no, no, don't confuse. The human being and even if you say okay well yeah a couple of white women yeah children but yeah yeah it's not unusual as tom jones would say who many people thought was black <laughs> it's not unusual yeah it's not unusual but don't confuse that with the iconic symbol with all its contradictions the iconic symbol of black people winning that's what we're talking about so when you get steve mcqueen and 12 Years a Slave, and I'm very critical of Stephen Queen for any number of reasons, the filmmaker, but I understand also the other side of it. People saying, I don't want to see no more slave movies. How many have you seen? I saw one. I don't want to see nobody get whipped. Right, because it's a movie and you got the option of looking away. What happens in real life? You know, your ancestors got whipped like that and fought back. I want to see winning. I understand. That's why you go out and see a monstrosity like Django Unchained. Why you want to see black people who were formerly enslaved blow something up. I get it. I understand the thrill. I also understand the laziness. 
Because Quentin Tarantino, I mean, you know, at least Quentin Tarantino doesn't have Martin Scorsese's problem, which is, you know, I, I can't find no black people to be in my movies. Well, you get a few. Stacks and uh, not Casino. What's that movie? Uh, Goodfellas. Mm. And that's fine. You know, I still got to go see Killers of the Flower Moon. Have you seen it yet, Prof? I haven't seen it. I've not. I, and, and I don't feel compelled to. Yeah, some kind of way I don't either. I mean, I know we'll both see it at some point, but maybe, 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 maybe. Okay, <laughs> you know, as soon as I, um, you know, because that oil was what mm. the Black Wall Street uh, into power. You know, they gave us the worst land. Exactly. Here, take this bramble, you know, thistle, you know, uh, dry. Take this dry land. This is what was left, right? Because it was the big go, go get land, go west, young man. Yes. And so, you know, we talked about this with Robert Church when we had that conversation about, you know, funding that O.W. Gurley, J.B. Stratford. Teach. And then there's oil. Teach. Uh, we don't talk about what, what's the little girl, Sarah, um, little girl that was in the, in Rector. I think yeah. it was Sarah Rector, yeah. who was also, in, I think she was owned by one of the Indians, uh, the Native Americans, because that, that, that is a very complicated story. None of that's in there. There, Of course not. So I'm like, why, why am I watching something through your lens? Because you feel guilty about what was done to the indigenous people and you want to try to reclaim that, but there's a bigger story. And if you're not going to tell the whole story, I don't want to see none of it. That's okay. what I'm doing right now. So. We know the whole story is Martin Scorsese. It always has been. Right? I mean, they got. I mean, they get to tell the story the way they tell it, and I ain't mad at them, but like you said, if you don't want, I don't want to watch that if I... I mean, at some point, you know, because there are a lot of people who will still say, oh, he's a genius filmmaker. No, a genius filmmaker would be like Gordon Parsons. Gordon Parks, yeah. It would be like, uh, you know. Melvin Van Peoples. Yeah, Melvin Van Peoples, right. Or, or even Cassie Lemons in Ease Bayou. Or, or, or uh, Julie Dash. Oh, no question. Uzan Palsy, Dry White Season, Julie Dash, Daughters of the Dust, no question. Holly Garima. Holly Garima, yeah, I was going to say. Yeah. No, these, are the, these are the genius filmmakers. And, and again, I mean, that is the nexus in the early 70s. You've got that L.A. rebellion. you got Julie Dash. you got Holly Garima. You know, you got Shrikiana Aina coming through in the 70s as a student at Howard under them. And then you see, you know, the idea then of do we go to Hollywood? No. Or do we go to lowest common denominator and create a Hollywood East like uh, Tyler Perry? Mm, no. We want to show images, ashes, ashes and embers. We want to show images, the Wilmington 10. We want to show images that inspire black folk. We want to say nah to the way we've been. <laughs> we want to say nah, we're not going to do that. And But you have to have a place to stand because individuals don't beat institutions. You've got, even if the institution is a gathering, a collective, a convening of individuals, like what we saw at Grand Central Station last night. What a beautiful Ooh. Oh, that was beautiful. Bro, I'll talk about that. Will you talk about that for a minute? I mean, I would it made me wish I could have been there, prof. <laughs> First of all, um, when Grand Central Station reopened, um the editorial board that I was on at the Daily News got to be at Jordan's restaurant for its grand opening because the person that oversaw the rebuilding of it was Jennifer Rabb. Who is was the president of Hunter College, right? So we got yes. who is married to the editorial page editor at the Daily News. So so that building, first of all, is beautiful. Like the ceiling, I mean, it's just architecture and it's it's just amazing. But to imagine thousands and thousands of people singing, lining the 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 corridor, um, it's just and Jewish people mm -hmm. saying, not in my name. 
not in my name. My name. Song. I mean, it was just the solidarity. The it was just very. It was. It was heartwarming. It was. Do we do do we have the right to say nah as a collective? Do we have the right of refusal? Yes, yes, because that's the only way. You know, I started off asking you this question because people are conflicted. You know, how do I cast a vote for someone who is presiding over what you see? What we all are seeing, right? And not probably not seeing as much as as going is going on, you know. That's right. But you know, it, it, the the reaction to that, uh, we know Hamas is in in some tunnels. We know that because one of the people that they let out last week said they were in the tunnels. So yeah. you're blowing up buildings and people and that have nothing to do with it. Like That's there's right. millions of people that are just not just displaced, but you destroyed life. And somebody's got to say life matters. Life matters more than this conflict at this point. And what what's the goal here? Is the goal to get Hamas? Are you getting Hamas with this? And if you're not, then what are you doing? And for those thousands and thousands, I think they, there was like, how many, was it 10,000, 20, 15,000 people were in Grand Central Station last night, Jewish people? Yeah. Yes. And saying, not in my name. Not in my name. Happened, not in my name. And so, you know, but we also know that there were thousands of Jewish people, up to 250,000, that would come on a Saturday into the streets to protest the government of Netanyahu every exactly. weekend. But, but that's not coming back to the forefront. So it's like, yeah, like at the end of the day, your government is what um, does represent you. But we live in a vast society. And I think about this, you know, as people who live in America, when George Floyd was murdered. Yes. All over the world, people were looking at America like, what's wrong with y'all? People were in the streets. What's wrong with America? And I think about, you know, most of us are like, that doesn't represent us. That man with his knee on that man's neck did not represent me. And that's why we were in the streets. So I feel like, you know, we don't have the, the lens to be able to sit back and, and see this in its entirety. You know, it's always through these, like you said, scoreboards and, you know, yeah. us versus them and you know, this is not a sporting event. These are human beings living a living an experience. They're before the grace of God. Yes. You were born there. Yes. You, know, you were born here. But even here, you know, as people watch what we are doing, I have somebody right now that's in London, and they talked about how streets are clean, people are nice. You know, it's like it's mm. a different. It, the, the cops don't have guns. It's a different feel. Depends and, where you are in London. Right. Well, yeah, Cambridge actually they were in. Not, oh, not, Cambridge, this is yeah. uh, university city. Okay. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So it was a lot, a lot different. But I just think you know, from cities, Maine, eighty-nine percent uh, white, to the point where they couldn't find a man because he looked like everybody. You know, and then I was questioning the AI. I was like, so does AI only see black people as threats? Interesting. So they couldn't find him until they found him dead. How um, about that? He got to take his own life. Right, but it was like in in the last night they called him Mister. And I was like, oh, was, yeah, he gets humanity. Wait, hold on. He just murdered. Yeah. White people can't lose their humanity. <clears throat> even, even the terrorists get psychoanalyzed. Oh, because he, they so he lost his job, his girlfriend. His yeah, I'm like, what? No <laughs> I mean, you know, at this point, the only question becomes, are you going to be with our full humanity? Are you going to side with whiteness? That's it. I mean, you don't really. If, it's so funny you say because I mean, here's here's Wednesday's. Uh, financial times and you know they, they've been uh, they meaning those who attempt to maintain the kind of fascist approach have been roasting Antonio uh, Guterres the UN chief this is of course the headline financial times UN chief denounces clear violations of international law and Gaza conflict and you know it says UN chief Antonio Guterres has condemned clear violations of international law in Gaza 
as the U.S. added to mounting pressure on Israel to pause its bombardment and allow him more, more aid. I won't go deeply into it because it's very clear that the United Nations, which yesterday the General Assembly voted overwhelmingly to call for a ceasefire. Of course, the United States didn't vote for it, showing again the limits, uh, limits of diversity, equity, and inclusion. Uh, Linda Greenfield, of course, voting against it. That would be the American Negro, who is the UN representative of the Biden administration. I'm not mad at her. She's doing her job because individuals don't beat institutions. Whatever she thinks in her mind, and she might think something different, she might not. Don't matter. The hand got to go up when it's no vote for them. The world voted against this violence yesterday, the United Nations, at least the representatives of the world governments. But it reminds us that there is no we. So when you open it with the question of, you know, people saying I can't vote for a genocidal. OK, did you vote for Obama? Mm. Mm. Don't don't you know, there's no difference between Obama and Joe Biden. Now, Obama has now come in and started saying, you know, we don't need. OK, were well, you saying that when you're the president of empire, sir? Let's be clear when you were ordering and or approving drone strikes, sir. You know, when you were deporting children, sir, were you saying that? No, you weren't saying that because you're employee. And that's fine. See, our one of our challenges, and I think we can overcome it, is we don't have coherent thinking. Right. And, and, and so, you know, we, we don't make a distinction between the state and the people who live in these countries, the state formation. There is no difference between the white nationalist party, well, the, the, the Republican Party and the Democratic Party, because white nationalism is a signifier. It can float between the parties. When it comes to foreign policy, see, the state trumps everything. The country trumps everything. So if you think somehow not voting for Biden is going to make it better, or not voting for the Democrats, forget Biden. God only knows he makes it. To the major. You know, if you think voting for the Democrats, not voting, okay, let's put the white nationalists in. They've captured the lower chamber of the federal legislature with a purebred white nationalist. An onward Christian soldiers, you gay is an abomination before God. I don't care if your uh, stepfather raped you, you're going to bring the baby to term. White nationalist is now the speaker of the United States House of Representatives. They capture the upper chamber, the Senate, and the presidency. Handmaid tale going to look like, I wish we could be that. And then if you want to dance, then we're going to dance. And let's see how good how good y'all are with the strap, except they got the police. But guess what? It might have to come to that. I got friends who say, yeah, that's better than this because we'll finally resolve it. Yeah, but y'all haven't done the political work to organize people. So what you basically going to have is chaos. And maybe that's what you want too. Some of y'all anarchists think that the chaos might work. That's a debate we can have. It's a discussion we should have, not even debate. I don't mean frame it in that. But, but the point is that there are no state boundaries when it comes to power. This is critical in uh, today's weekend financial times in all places. Why, why are you doing that? I just want to correct myself because I like to be accurate. It wasn't thousands. It was hundreds of people at Grand Central. So I just want to, well, I, I don't want to be hyperbolic no, like some people, but I want to, you know, make sure that I am. Well, always. Who's reporting hundreds? Well, you know what? New York Times. Okay. Exactly. You're gonna believe me or your lying eyes. In other words, let's say it was 900 people there. That ain't 900 people to you. It's over a thousand at least. I mean, you see the picture. I mean, those of us who can look at a crowd, you know, there's a reason why the National Park Service stopped estimating crowds after the Million Man March. Because yes, you can't yes. pull the propaganda. We were there. 
Oh, it has over 600 people. That's a that's a bald faced lie. They was on the steps of the Capitol all the way past the Washington Monument. And anybody want to say that's not true? I don't give a damn what you say. We were there. Oh, well, we're gonna stop counting. Yeah, you gonna stop counting. And this is what is beginning to happen in the white facing mass media entertainment press. Here's to, uh, is this today's Financial Times? This is uh. Oh wait, 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 wait. So uh, 200 were arrested at Grand Central. Okay, so right, that was right. Okay, more than 200 were arrested. Okay, so I was right. I was right. Yeah, of course you were right. Is what I'm saying. But again, the New York Times has a has a dog in this fight. You understand? The New York Times is the record of empire. That's why I love the Financial Times. The Financial Times is the money boys. And anytime the money boys have on their op-ed page today, the money boys got a picture of BB. And they say Israel must discern between Hamas and the people of Gaza. Anytime the money boy is saying that, that means that the we that are saying now in more and more numbers, not hundreds, not thousands, but millions worldwide, anytime the money boys start telling this attack dog to stand down, you know that the formation of we is growing and they can't stop it. So when you can't stop it, you got to join it. We're going to talk about that in a minute as well. But there are- right, Before you go forward, uh, I just, what does pure chaos look like? Have we seen that before? Uh, well, for, for us, for us, pure pure chaos, because I do think is that's what's going to happen. When you said it, I was like, yes, of course. There's, there's two There's two few leaders. There, there are no Ella Bakers, Fannie Lou Hamers, Mary Bethune, there's, there's, there's no A. Philip Randolph. There are none of those right now, right? People who are organizing Bayard Rustins. And there's so much ignorance. At least we cared about education. Even if we had to share crop, people knew it was valuable to read and go get an education. Even if you just went to third grade, uh, Mother Mother uh, Fletcher from Tulsa said, you know, we had to leave school, but she valued, and her little brother who just passed, valued education. We don't even value education. We are inundated with misinformation and we don't really even care. We care, like you said, about Sexy Red or Dwight Howard's bedroom situation, but this is important. So I think we are headed for uh, self-destruction. We're headed for chaos. Uh, what on. does it look like, though? What does it look like? And how do we, you know, have we been there before where we can come out of it? That's actually a very good reference on the way to that question, because that wasn't that long ago. We were adults when those hip hop artists came together and talked about today's topic, self-destruction. <laughs> it really ain't the rap audience that's bugging. It's just one or two brothers. Ign others, ignorant brothers, when KRS is saying today's time. And of course, that famous line from our brother Cool Mo D, I never ever ran from the Ku Klux Klan and I shouldn't have to run from a black man. You know, MC Light coming in and said, who, who are you going to stab with this knife? Why are you coming in the party? Man? You know, leave the guns in the night and the crack alone. MC Light's on the microphone. You know? So this is in our living memory. So we do have the capability. We just got to rebuild the bridges. And those external forces in the social structure have continued to bombard us. YouTube is not 20 years old. TikTok is, is in the single digits in age. Facebook is not that, oh, these didn't exist when these artists come together with the Stop the Violence Movement on the East Coast or on the West Coast, where we're all in the same gang. They, they, are, they are emerging at a moment when the social structure's capacity to control them hasn't yet congealed in a way that will not allow them to express themselves. So the 1980s are a decade. That's why people call it the golden age of hip-hop. In fact, there's a great book just came out by Cottington called How Hip-Hop Became Hip-Hop, Radio, Rap, and Race. And what she's doing is tracing how 
these 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 corporations got a hold of it. But those were the gaps where they didn't have a hold of it. I don't know that. Clearly, we don't value education in the same way we valued it during apartheid. Clearly, we don't value it the same way we valued it in the 70s, 80s, 90s. And a lot of that is because of, as you say, the, the impact of mass media and just bombarding our children. So every day when I go down Georgia Avenue, I jump on the 70 bus or the 79, I go down, or I get on the subway. You get on that, you get on the bus at seven in the morning in DC. And at the stops, you see all the children getting on with their book bags. You see their mothers and fathers getting on, taking them to school. Sometimes you see them unaccompanied. As I've told y'all before, the first time I ever saw a child, a six, seven-year-old on a subway with no adult was when I moved to Philadelphia in 1992, 93. I'm on a train. I said, where are these kids' parents at? They're going to school. It's not that we don't value education, but it is that the, the forces have so congealed in a way to make it damn near impossible for some people to express that value or to push that value through. This is one reason, as we've talked about many times, you know, people love Abbott Elementary, the, 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 the comedy. You see, in spite of, we're trying to do this, but, 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 but the forces continue to congeal. Now, how that plays out in terms of what's going on now, in terms of this killing, this global killing. We talked about Africa last week. We can't forget Haiti, all those things. And what's, go what's going on in Israel and Gaza and West Bank is a focal point that allows us to use as a point of entry to stop it all. Because the world is focused on it primarily because it's white people involved. What? Yeah. Uh-huh. And the white states. So you got to use it as a point of entry. I know there are those, and somebody said in the YouTube chat, I think I saw in the YouTube chat, somebody said that uh, Dr. Umar wouldn't approve of Richard Roundtree's wife. No, he wouldn't. But Umar is also like, I ain't getting involved in that over there. They ain't black people. Okay, brother. You're missing the point. They're human beings. The last thing you want people of African descent to do is take up the valuation and the paradigm and the binary that whiteness did. And that that way, you, what you're basically doing is making blackness a caricature of whiteness. You talk about blackface whiteness, when you take that same stance, everybody gonna die. Now, I'm not saying you embrace the Martin King approach either, but what I am saying is human suffering requires an end. You don't end human suffering by imposing human suffering. But that doesn't mean that you're going to be weak. As, as Kwame Ture often said about Martin Luther King, as Stoney Carmichael said about Martin Luther King, he was the most courageous man I knew. He said, Dr. King is the most courageous man I knew. I knew him. Uh, you see, uh, you say nonviolence is weakness. No, he never backed down from confrontation. You got to say, nah. This Parks ain't bust nobody in her eye, in his eye. He ain't bust no bus drivers in the eye. Nah. And there were people who, who would have done that. So I guess what I'm saying is there are no state boundaries. For the ruling class, this is the life and art section of today's Financial Times. It says, how to be an oligarch. No longer confined to Russian politics, oligarchs have diversified. From Elon Musk to Donald Trump, today's super rich govern, set agendas, and rewire our minds. And they thrive in times of turmoil. You think it's an accident that the algorithm is pushing Dwight Howard's bedroom? Elon Musk got a stake in this war. He got a stake in settler colonialism. This isn't about thousands of years of hatreds between groups. It's about other things. In fact, I'm going to tell you what it's about right now. I'm going to show you what it's about right now. This was in Tuesday's Financial Times. Professor Hunter, did they have Hess as a filling station? Oh, we call it a filling station in the South. Gas station in Jersey. Yes, yes. Right? That's, 
Hess, I mean, that's that's the Jets. Right. Jets. Yeah, there's that's a Hess. Was, right? Because uh, oh, yeah. Chevron yeah. oh. doubles down on fossil fuel wager with $53 billion swoop for Hess. Chevron just bought Hess. Yeah, I saw that. You see that? And then this is what it says. Chevron, the deal, the biggest in Chevron's history, gives Hess an enterprise value, including debt, uh, of $60 billion and delivers a soup, the super major a foothold in, here we are, y'all, wait for it, wait for it, Guyana. Oh, the biggest oil discovery of the past decade. Wait, you said Guyana? Uh -huh. Guyana? They found the biggest oil? What? What now, Dr. Carr? The biggest oil discovery in the, in the last decade in the world has been in Guyana. Hess was in there. And in the words of Ice Cube from No Vaseline, now let's play big bank, take little bank. Chevron just bought S, which gives them the entry into Guyana. And understand, in fact, let me just go on. Says, um, hmm. It says, uh, the oil and gas industry is facing an uncertain future as developed countries attempt to shortly reduce their reliance on fossil fuels. But Chevron and ExxonMobil have bet heavily on what they argue will be the long-term resilience of oil and gas demand. The stance is in contrast with some European energy majors, such as BP and Total Energies, which are increasing investments in renewable energy at a faster pace than their U.S. peers. The companies are fighting. You see, BP and Total Energy is saying we got to go with these renewables because that's the future. Chevron, Exxon Mobil, like, no, we're going to double down on gas. Neither one of them give a F about the environment. They trying to make the money. Now we come back to Israel and Palestine. Is this about what you do? The Guyanese now are rich, right? All of the black Guyanese, they're they're just steeped in money, right, Dr. Carr? Oh, yeah. I mean, they're feminine so, now. Aren't they yeah. just, just oh, right now. Well, if they own stock. In Chevron, which of course you know they don't, right? But actually, I'm glad you raised that prop because uh there was a deal struck this week between Cuba and Guyana. Not mm. for real, for of all things, honeybees. The Cuban scientists, the go Cuban government and Cuban scientists have struck a deal with Guyana to mass produce honey. To use honey, I mean, there are, of course, we know honey has all kinds of reasons, but it was on the front page of one of the papers I was reading this week. And I'm just raising that say, well, honey or oil, what's more important? Well, I don't know. Get rid of the honeybees and find out if you're around to drive that car. The whole point is that there are ways to shift this at the state level, but state actors, there are no state boundaries when it comes to capital, when it comes to capitalism. So let's tie a few these things together. I mean, you know, when the UN General Assembly voted yesterday, for immediate ceasefire in Gaza, for the release of all citizens, meaning hostages, all that, the protection of civilians and international institutions, and include the safe passage and humanitarian aid into the Gaza Strip, the United States voted against it. Because they say you didn't condemn Hamas. Okay, there are no magic words that you could offer that would allow you to vote for it. Why? Because the people who own you have told you no, this is how you're going to vote, Linda, our ambassador. There is no we, the thriving oligarchs, the, the Chevrons of the world, the Hesses of the world. They have another agenda, and it doesn't stop at the four corners of your country boundary. We don't have coherent thinking. By we, I mean those of us who are not paying attention so that we think that switching out a president is going to change the agenda when it comes to, quote, unquote, foreign policy. And this is where I want to take it back to where we started a minute ago with this question of kingdoms of olives and ash. In this book, these are two Jews, Michael Shabon 
and Ayelet Waldman, who confront the occupation of Palestine by Israel. But they don't do it alone. In fact, this is what happens. I'm going to read it word for I don't want to be misquoted here. They say, um, in 2014, at the invitation of the Jerusalem International Writers Festival, Ayelet went back to Israel. Remember, she was born in Jerusalem. While she was there, she met with some of the courageous members of Breaking the Silence, BTS, a nonprofit organization composed of former Israeli soldiers whose service in the occupied territories has inexorably led them to work vigorously and courageously to oppose the occupation and bring it to an end. These soldiers. Now, the news is saying, oh, yeah, they, they mobilized 300,000 people. Every adult in the Israel is in the army. Uh-huh. In the military. So as my friend Gerald Horn would say, they stock in shelves in a grocery store one day. They're in an office building one day behind a desk. The next day, they got on a uniform, got a gun in their hand. All them people are for it. As you said, prop, they're protesting in Israel. You say, oh, hold on. The, the loss of life is, is, is not only tragic, it's indefensible, it's inhumane. We're having the 1,400 people. That got to stop. This thing got to be undermined, got to be up uprooted. Nah, but wait a minute. Not in my name. I'm not going to shoot no kid. Wait. You told a million people to leave the north part of where they are, go to the south, then you start bombing the south and the road you told them to walk on. Hell no. Nah. What is going when I say chaos in this country, there is no coherent. There is this is as I say often, the United States is not a nation. It's a it's a state, it's a country with many different nations in it. So when people say we, they're not talking about everybody in the country. They're talking about the people they can coerce into behavior. They're talking about people that if you speak out against it, you can try to silence them through economic force, political force. You can try to fire them or you can try to put them out of school. So when you ask the question at the beginning of Shaft, who is the man? Who is the woman? Who are the people that will risk their neck for the other people? Risk is at the center of this. At our limit, what will we risk? If you risk it by yourself, like Rhonda Woodson, the young uh, non-binary student at NYU who was the president of the Student Bar Association who lost the presidency of the Student Bar Association and had their job offer revoked. Then Ms. Wilson by herself, except people are coming in and supporting her. Then New York University doesn't give her any extra security, doesn't give her any protection. She's getting death threats from all over. Why? Because these punk anti-human against our common humanity people don't want to hear about killing because ain't no people being killed in Gaza. They're vermin. They're rats. And if you say, they're not saying that's a bald-faced lie. Read what they said at their own mouths. These are not human beings. Now, if you got people saying the Israeli aren't human beings either, and there are people who are saying that, there's a problem too. Nah! You can't do that. Because guess what? That leaves everybody. This brother telling me on Thursday, got a son and a nephew. One already over there, the other one on standard duty to go. Truly remarkable. Because in the narratives that are being pressed for a war mentality, the only people who die are people who you on your, your you divided the world into teams and only people die are people on your team. So what you see is, and why, why, read, read the papers, look at the news. What you see, and if you just to see, watch it, it starts with horror, kill them. Horror, self-defense. Horror, you're trying to, okay, we're going to spin this way. We've always spun it, but now it's like, Wait, these people protesting. Wait, it's more people protesting. Wait, whoa, 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 here go people who read the New York Times and vote for the Democratic Party and they all lined up in Grand Central Station. Oh, what the hell? Okay, hold on, hold on. All right, let's throw some individual stories out there. And if you say, yeah, all this is tragic and it's got to stop. Here go some other individual stories from the other team that you divide the world into the team. Oh, 
okay, well, maybe we should watch how this unfolds. Watch the calls for ceasefire begin to continue, continue but now you're going to see it seep into these state structures. Why? Because more and more people are forming into a we. This is what will keep us out of the chaos. The, the resistance, which then leads us back to the question of what, what we as African people, what we are faced with, in, particularly in the United States. Well, during apartheid, we had a we. The class uh, stratification is forestalled by apartheid. So you, you, can't, you can't be black and bougie and not live in the neighborhood because the white people then boxed you in. So you got to work together with everybody. Senator Robinson writes about this beautifully in Black Movements in America. Before that was enslavement, of course. And so you got to work together to get out of that. You got to, but then once those laws change, as W.E.B. Du Bois tells those school teachers, he and Shirley Graham Du Bois tell them at Johnson C. Smith as when they had the convening of black social science, black social science teachers in 1960. He says, when these laws change, now you got to ask question of race and culture. You didn't have to ask it immediately in the same way, because in the decade that Richard Roundtree made Shaft, there's still a cohesive kind of blackness that is echo, an echo from the apartheid era. Good guys, bad guys, this kind of thing. But the farther we get from the lash, the farther we get from the segregation era, the more we see the diversification take on the look of diversification in any capitalist society. So you got Negroes on all sides of the debate, as there always were, but now there aren't any coherent institutional forces to either have that debate, like Mr. Johnson had when he gave Hoyt Fuller Black World and Negro Digest as a magazine, or even in the pages of Ebony magazine. Those, those theme issues year after year or week by week and jet, th those don't exist anymore. Now anybody get up in the morning, tweet something, text something, but who's mediating it? The corporate oligarchs, meaning what? The algorithms are picking winners and losers. So you know more about Dwight Howard than what happened in God last night. Why? Because we don't need any problems. We need distractions. We got to forestall the we. But people have the right to protest. And there's no such thing as one's own people when you're attacking common humanity, which leads me to. Oh, go ahead. You... No, I just, um, I had a, a journalist join my class yesterday. Oh, wow. And we, you know, we both, um, he used to work at the Daily News a uh, hundred years ago. <laughs> and we were talking about why he left media because mm. there used to be a time where you would go pitch a story. That was a good story. You found a story. You would pitch it to your editor and your editor was like, okay, let's do that. Now there's a whole team of data analysts My that will say, this won't get any clicks. This doesn't get any So what happens is your stories now get filtered through the algorithm. If it doesn't get any traction, it's not a story. And the problem with that is now, everybody's doing the same story because that's what generates the clicks and the clicks generate the money. So they're not going to do stories that don't make money. And he said, so as a journalist, I don't know, even that like he covered sports. And he said, now the sports people have their own platforms and they're getting paid. So you have a Aaron Rodgers who's on Pat, Pat McAfee getting paid. So as a journalist, Aaron Rodgers is not going to give me any, any story he's okay. going to give it to the person that's paying him or if i'm naomi osaka i got my own platform i'm gonna tell you where i'm injured or my mental health i'm not giving that to a reporter and i get paid as an influencer so i have advertisers on my social media if i have more than a million and so even how we're getting our information is through this, these lenses that are not um serving us at all and it when he said it, it it's it made me sit, Dr. Carr, because I'm like, if everyone's doing this, and, and now there's conglomerate. So it used to be independent when I started at the Daily News, the Tribune owned it. It was a union shop. It was now you have 
multimedia companies that own, like even Bezos owns the Washington Post, Musk owns yes. Twitter. Yes. The other guy, Zuckerman, owns Facebook, which is also driving a lot of our information, right? And and playing with it. So I can't blame us because where do we go? Even the New York Times, we we went all the way back to World War II with the with the bomb to find out that even we can't trust the information coming from there. That was in the 1940s, right? right. Now we got you know algorithms and data and all of this that drives everything, yes. everything that we consume. Every TV outlet, which is why it's on a loop, they are the same stories. Like there are more stories, but we'll never see them because they don't make money. Because if you do something that's not within the algorithm, it's not going to compute. So how do we, how do we, you know. Well, well, you're doing it. You muted yourself. I did. I did. I'm just, I'm just, it just, it, it, he left business because he was like, there's no, what what am I going to do? Just follow the algorithm? Like at. What's my what's my value as a journalist if I can't tell stories because no one's gonna my editor's not gonna approve it because it's not gonna make money. Not gonna make money, but I mean, he can look at what you're doing. In fact, he came to talk to your students. In other words, you 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 fight the good fight, and the more of us who join you in that fight, which is why you know we have this platform now. A couple thousand people in here this morning, just on the Nubia side, on the YouTube side, a bunch of other people here, you know, clicking the like button, sharing it, and telling people to join. Coin, you you the nah, the right to refuse and to build something different is always a choice for us. And so, what do you do? You do like I say they're not going to cover those stories because, like you said, it's driven by another agenda, the algorithm, the corporate uh, media, and then there's a whole shelf of books, you know, talking about race and cyberspace and all that. And you've interviewed a lot of those people and had that conversation. But the fact that you interviewed them and had that conversation is the answer. You answer the question, which yeah. you practice. I mean, but even on YouTube, you you know, it's you you get to you know you click on something, and then that's what you get fed, not what you need to eat. So. Right. You know, if you're clicking on junk and junk, so we have to be really, and, and, and it's a responsibility on us. So yes, Urban View is dope, but it's behind a paywall. Urban View, Lurie, Clay, everybody on there, Reese, powerful, powerful. We we do our work. We do our homework. We're coming in with knowledge, right? But that's behind a paywall. Narrative is, is you know, a certain thing too. YouTube, the wild, wild west as far as I'm concerned, but it's also <laughs> driven by that same algorithm. Yeah. So people have to be intentional about turning down the noise, if it's something that you know is propaganda, that you know is not from a reliable source, you have to not click on it, even if it's a sexy title with a sexy picture, because that's how they get you, right? Because the more you click on it, the more you're going to get, that's all you're going to get. Are you going to get so, it? And, and so I will be, it, I'll admit this, Dr. Carr, it's, it's daunting sometimes because yeah. it feels like Sisyphus pushing this rock up yeah. the hill. Absolutely. It really does feel like it. Absolutely. But yeah, I'm going to keep pushing. Until it breaks. You answering the question, the theme for the day. I mean, at our limit, what will we risk? Who is the woman who will risk her neck for her fellow woman? Karen Hunter. <laughs> Damn right. In other words, in other words I mean, that, that's a, no, I'm serious. In other words, when we reach our limit, what are we going to do then? I mean, nobody, I'm sure Rhonda Woodson wasn't thinking that that job offer at the law firm was going to evaporate because they put out a statement saying this is what's going on. Not a, not a, I'm against, no, just this is what's going on. Okay, you lost your, whoa, who is the person who will risk their neck for the other person? And the reason we like John Shab is because Shab beat up the drug dealers, beat up the police, and then walked away in a leather coat. In other words, I mean, but it was, but, but there's a reason we call it life and times. Yeah. The life is one thing. The times are another thing. 
Shaft emerges in a moment when the Black Power movement, the Panthers, and like you say, SNCC, and all, when, when there's a, and there's a global movement going on. We have we, we got to continue that momentum, and we're seeing it emerge now. These states think they could just break you. They would have had straight propaganda on this, except the people was like nah, and then more people was like nah, and then more people was like nah. Again, reading this piece, Kings of Olives and Ash, I'm reading um. You know, as I said, uh, Ayelet Waldman says she went to Tel Aviv, had a wonderful time, and then says Ayelet had a wonderful time in Tel Aviv. Therein lie the later problem. She hadn't been home 25 years. She says she felt so at ease in the country of her birth, so at home. We talked about home last week. But if she felt that way, she somehow, that somehow she belonged to this country by virtue of birth and temperament and upbringing, by virtue of being Jewish, then too, then so too did she bear some of the measure of responsibility for the crimes and injustices perpetrated in the name of that home and its security. She said, I was in Tel Aviv having a great time. And then I realized that just over there, there's violence going on, unspeakable violence. And I don't have to deal with it. I'm sitting here in the cafe. I can simply pretend it's not there. So at our limit, we have to do exactly what you just said. Instead of tuning into the algorithm and keep pressing the stuff and keep getting fed to poison and more and more poison, we have to stop. That's why what we're doing is so, one of the reasons what we're all doing collectively in this space is so important. The more people come, the more of the we we have. And guess what happens? These state structures have to concede. They have, the, the first concession is when they come to say they're going to help you. Oh, we want to sponsor, we want to support, uh-huh. Because you know that your control relies on keeping the weed that could form at bay through the distractions, through the constant bombardment, through the sporting events, through the through the various distractions. But it's fascinating because, again, Jacqueline Woodson, and we kind of wrap this up, Jacqueline Woodson's uh, essay is called One's Own People. And she talks about the fact that she and her partner raising two black sons. Now, her partner happens to be Jewish, Jacqueline Woodson. And she's talking about uh, Dr. Juliet Woodoff is her name. They're raising two black sons, right? And, and they went to Israel. And she said, for many weeks before I was to travel, I came to tears often. I was afraid not only because of the daily horrors moving across my computer screen, but because my partner, a, a physician, had visited Hebron four years before. And I had been terrified that she wouldn't return to us, that I would be left not only with two young children, but having to live a life without her that I would be left raising a beautiful brown boy in a country that hated its brown boys. She's talking about the United States. Mm. She's talking about the United States. Y'all stop playing this home team BS between domestic and foreign policy. Continues, she says, a brown girl in a world that didn't see her. I cried because years after my partner's journey, we would be traveling to Palestine together. Our children at a summer camp in New Hampshire, miles away from family. And I, I was a boy and a girl, I'm sorry. And as I would come to understand, a world away from anything they could even begin to comprehend at this point in their lives. This is why I thought about two boys. What comes next? Jacqueline Woodson says, because even while we caution our brown boy about his behavior when addressing cops, eyes up, hands visible, never run. Uh -huh. Sound familiar, West Bank, Gaza? And our brown girl about how to walk into a room with her brown body. Cover it, please. Sound familiar, Professor Hunter? Sound familiar, those of you in places where the police exercise as a tool of the state and police you simply because of who you are and how you look? Jacqueline Woodson says, I know now that there are mothers in Hebron who are waiting for their children to come home. 
I was in Hebron, she writes, and white soldiers closed all checkpoints as two small boys sharing a bicycle stood outside, crying that their mothers didn't know where they were. Please let us go home, they said again and again, their words falling into the dust. She said, I was met with a Palestinian activist named Isa Amro and, her, and, and my partner, Juliet. The soldiers, no more than young people themselves. Nah. These soldiers once organized people to have the trip to write this anthology. The soldiers, no more than young people themselves, their guns slung across their torsos, looked on or away. Their young faces set into the work they were drafted to do for three years. The children, still holding tight to their bicycle, continued to beg. There was nothing we could do. That evening, my partner and I went back to our hotel room, turned on our computer, and exhaled in the, the dispatches from the New Hampshire camp. Our children were safe. Our children were happy, but we were different now. With us, we carried those crying boys. She goes on and said, what I know now is there is no longer such a thing as one's own people. This is critical. This is critical. The right of refusal, the right to say no, to right to say you're against killing. And then when these forces of the state use violence against you, corporate violence in terms of taking your job or, or condemning you, or like this hillbilly from Georgia, Marjorie Taylor Greene, saying that uh, that uh, Rashida Tlaib getting to be put off the Foreign Service Committee. Y'all put Ilhan Omar off the committee. Hillbilly, let's dance, hillbilly. I'm gonna dance your feet off. Because you and your clan adjacent people, it's about to be collapsed. And the only thing that's gonna keep me off your complete Jerry Lawler ass. <laughs> it's going to be the fact that we cannot become what you are. So this isn't about doing any form of violence to anyone, but it is about saying, nah, nah, nah. The villain of this piece, as I've said many times, we kind of wind up, is the nation state. It's citizenship. It's settler colonial states. You almost got to get rid of the state. That ain't going to happen no time soon. But what's happening is inside these corners of countries, the thing is collapsing from within. So while you're running the rah-rah nationalist foreign policy propaganda, the people who live inside the countries is like, nah, nah. What happens when you are tied inexorably to the state, to the place? The state of Israel does not exist as an organic entity any more than the United States exists, any more than Nigeria or England exists. These are countries. And when the Zionist movement morphs in the late 19th, early 20th century from we are a people to we need this piece of geographical territory that the British colonial dictate where we going and those things converge, now you are wedding an idea, cultural meaning making, a notion of a people, you are, and Jacqueline Wilson says, there is no our people, but you're wedding that concept because you've been harmed, you've been traumatized. You're wedding it to a piece of land. Once you've locked that idea in, and guess who else does it? This funky settler colony. Nick Rose is saying, us too, us too, us too. We help build America, we help build America. Why in the hell are you narrating yourself as dictated to a patch of land? And don't think you're getting around it by saying, well, before us, it was the Native Americans. So we're standing here on Nagaseki land or we're on the land of the... Yeah, okay, but what? But why are you still narrating this as a home team versus away team narrative? What happens when you are tied inexorably to the politics of a place? Well, guess what? It becomes a fidelity to a bureaucratic entity. War becomes inevitable. And who carries the burden of that? The people trapped by the configuration. So guess what? Now you say, I'm Jewish. People immediately, uh, well, 
No, because you're thinking about those people in terms of a play. Let's look at, let's see. Here's today's New York Times. Chappelle. Chappelle can't help wading into conflict with microphone. So now they're going to, you know, Dave Chappelle, I told you I can't get canceled. Well, guess what? They're going to try again. Why? Halfway through a sold-out show at PNC Arena in Raleigh on Wednesday, Dave Chappelle stopped to ask the audience from screaming about screaming coming from the balcony. Quote, I'm scared it might be the Jews coming for me, end quote, he said with a mischievous tone in his gravelly voice. This was a reference to a previous show in Boston where Chappelle's criticism of Israel's Israeli policies reportedly led to cheers and pushback from the crowd, hundreds of walkouts, and one patron protesting online that she never felt more unsafe. Guess what? People being unsafe has a lot to do with the politics of no common humanity. And you got to carry the burden, regardless of who you are as an individual, because people then painted a jersey on your back. This is the villainship of the nation state. This is why that shovel mouth uh, piece of work in Texas, the governor of Texas, they're going to take millions of your tax dollars and build another wall down there and dare the federal government to do something about it. That was announced this week. Guess what? I'm loving it. Because you're going to tear this funky thing up. Have we seen this before? Sure. It's called the Civil War. It's called states' rights in the 1950s and 60s. You don't want the United States of America to guarantee liberties and guarantee people's freedom of speech and expression. You don't want that. What you want is white nationalism. And if the state legislature, if the federal framework can't provide it for you, you're going to do what you've always done. Try to take it to the local. Do it, baby. Do it, baby. Now, before you do it, though, I want you to look outside of your little funky office in Austin, sir. Look at the people mowing your grass. Look at the people that clean that toilet you just used in your little funky office. Look at the people who are waxing the floors in the legislature, and you just count them up. You should have counted up the cost, but instead you got lost in your white supremacy. And guess what? This man is going to overwhelm you. Now, I'm not saying there's not going to be any pain, but who carries the burden? If you're going to connect yourself just to the land, you're going to engender enemies that are right next to you. They've cooked your breakfast this morning in the, in the cafeteria in the Capitol in Austin, Texas. The people who probably washed your car at your house, sir. And they're not going to have any more fidelity for you than anybody else because you've chosen a side decided with power against them. And guess what? You ain't got enough police. I know you think you do, but you're sending other people's children to fight while their father and uncle is on the 70 bus in D.C. saying, I'm just praying they come back safe. How, safe. how many of those soldiers are going to go over there, look at those young soldiers on the other side who were also, before they were active, they don't have active duty, stocking shelves and working somewhere and say, nah, this is the history of it. What happens in world history? When enough people overwhelm the capacity of the state, the state changes. Now, of course, this is what happens at the end, though. Then they write, rewrite history. They rewrite the memory narratives to act like those people who were the truest devotees to the NAD, they were with them all along. So Rosa Parks is a criminal in 1955. Now she got a statue in the state capitol and they say, I mean, in the, in, in, in the Congress and they say, yeah, Rosa Parks, I mean, she, she lived, the, 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 she lived uh, to the truest meaning of the founding fathers. <laughs> Okay, like Harriet Tubman. You're going to put her on the money, right? Yeah. Okay, you're going to put Harriet Tubman on the back of the $20 bill, and on the front, you're going to still have an Indian killer, Andrew Jackson, right, who would have arrested her when she had that $50,000 bond on her head in the 1850s. Well, I, 
Yeah, you know why? Because the we overwhelmed you, and then you had to rewrite your narrative to make it look like y'all was on our side all along. You weren't. You were not. They just renamed the last uh, fort. They had a name for John Brown Gordon in in uh, in, in in Georgia, a former senator from Georgia, a former uh, governor of Georgia, and before that, well, the, all that time he was a member of the Ku Klux Klan, one of the founders of the Klan, and a Confederate lieutenant general. Well, they just renamed it in Georgia. That's the last one. That was the last one of nine. They named it from Fort Gordon to uh, mm, oh, Fort Eisenhower. And in the in the naming announcement yesterday, this is what they said the commander of Fort Eisenhower now. Eisenhower is good to name for him because he was a proponent of civil rights and integration. Shit. <laughs> but this is what they do, though. <laughs> you, you'd have forgot when Louis Armstrong got off that plane when the State Department sent him and Louise around the world to be a goodwill ambassador, and they put that microphone in his face in 1957 and say, what do you think about the Little Rock Nine? And and and, and, and Louis Armstrong called Orville Faubus, the governor of Arkansas, an uneducated plowboy, and he said, it seemed to me that Eisenhower need to take that good girl by the hand and walk her into that school. Yeah, he shamed Eisenhower, and this whole time, Louise sitting there rubbing her head like, oh my God, my husband never talks about stuff like this, but Louis Armstrong had had enough at our limit. What will we risk? Nah, y'all know me. I'm Louis Armstrong. I'm Louis Armstrong. I'm gonna open my show tonight with Sleepy Time Down South. Pale moon rising. I'm gonna, I'm gonna, you know, then I hear Mammy on her knees when it's Sleepy Time Down South. We love Louis Armstrong. What you think about Lil Rock? Ah, nah, nah. Well, guess what? Eisenhower then sending the troops in. I got to send the troops in. Louis Armstrong giving me smoke. All the people like, what the hell? But guess what? Here we are in 2023, October 2023, and they renamed this fort for Louis Armstrong. No, they didn't. They <laughs> renamed it for Eisenhower because all of a sudden, Eisenhower is a superhero because we didn't forgot our history. So I want to end with this, bring it back to Richard Roundtree. And I remember when we talked about this a couple of years ago, he made many films. One of my favorites, of course, is uh, Man Friday, 1975. It's a little clunky script, I know, but I love it. The idea is, of course, those of you who had to read Robinson Crusoe, Prof, I asked my students on Thursday if they had, had to read Robinson Crusoe. And maybe two hands went up. They don't even read that no more in the schools, which is cool. Jonathan Swift, satire. I mean, it's a no problem. In fact, I'd much prefer they read Sundiata or, you know, any number of things. But if they got to pick. Of course, the, the whole notion of, of Robinson Crusoe is, of course, this Englishman gets stranded on this desert island. He starts naming everything. And Googie Watiango does a beautiful job of roasting him and using it as an example of what Europe does. They're going to come and control everything. I'm going to name the flowers. I'm going to count time on my map. And here comes a human being. You're not a human being. You may call me master. I will call you Friday because I've been marking the days on the calendar, time being something I have to control too, Jacob Carruthers, science and depression. And I will name you Friday. I don't care what your name is. You don't have a name until you appear to me. Just like when people talk about enslaved people, which is why even now, this is today's uh, Financial Times, uh, how to spend it. You know, they got their, their glossy magazine in, in the weekend edition. But I was tripping because here going a long ass article on the trail of the Underground Railroad because now it's profitable to go see these sites. And it says for hundreds of years, U.S. history has been viewed largely as white history. Not by us, social structure narrative says, now Americans are embracing a more inclusive attitude to the past. 
In particular, record numbers are visiting sites that commemorate the quote-unquote Underground Railroad, a secret network that helped tens of thousands of Black Americans free slavery in the South to freedom in the North and Canada in the years leading up to the U.S. Civil War. What's wrong with that sentence? I'll read the wrong part. They helped tens of thousands of Black Americans. That's what they were? Black Americans in the 1850s, 1840s, 1830s? They were Black Americans. No, they were property. No, they weren't property. Call it what you called it. At least call it what you called it. But what you're going to do is backmap it and say, oh, these people, the minute they got off the boat, they were Americans. They were enslaved Americans. Stop all that bullshit. They were Akan. They were Yoruba. They were Fon. They were Dahomey. More importantly, they were sons and daughters. And, and what this is what Dan Black is writing about. What they were not as Americans. I don't give a damn. I don't care if your projects are 16, 19, 17, 76, or yesterday. What you're not going to do is fold our memory into this funky little settler narrative so that you will now, after we fought our way out of oppression, backmap it to look like we was with y'all all along. Those slaves looked up and heard George Washington and said, me too. <laughs> I'm not throwing away my shot. I don't give a damn if it's in English or Spanish. It's all blackface minstrelsy. But the point is, Man Friday, Crusoe gets to name everybody in Robinson Crusoe. So Richard Roundtree stars as Friday, the man that Peter O'Toole character, Robinson Crusoe, names Friday when he encounters him. Except Man Friday, the whole story is told as Richard Roundtree every night after going to see Robinson Crusoe on the other side of the island and Crusoe's doing what he did in, in, the, in the novel, every night, quote unquote, Friday goes back to his village. And he reporting on how crazy this dude is. I mean, yeah, what do white man do today? Oh, uh, they don't call him white man. What does he do today? I today he did this and honey. Then he wanted us to run a race. And so he said, go. And I just started jogging up and down. He took off running. I said, Why are you running? We can just jog in place. He said, No, the objective of a race is to win. He said, But what are you winning? If I'm jogging here, I'm still getting exercise. And it reminds me of Natasha Warwick, who's uh, book Race at the Top, where she said, in New England, she made this mythological New England town up because she did a uh, kind of a ethnography of academic achievement. She said the Asian students were in high school with the white students and the Asian students were achieving at the top academically and they weren't doing athletics and things like that. And they had a PTA meeting and uh, the white people were like, well, why don't y'all participate in sports? And many of the Asian parents were like, well, if the point of sports is exercise, we can get exercise other ways. Why would I spend time doing like that? So what did the white parents do? They took over the PTA and started passing rules like abolishing homework. Why? Because you're doing homework. And they say, yeah, we're doing homework like y'all doing homework. No, y'all doing homework on the weekends. Y'all doing homework at night in, in these formations. And we don't like that. And they said, well, you can join us. You can come to our Saturday school. You can come to our... No, we don't want to do that. Our kids want to play on the weekends. Well, ain't nobody told you. To, you, you choose what you want to do. And then they said, no, we got to change the rules. The goal of this is to keep us at top. So therefore, we're abolishing homework. huh? My point being that, like Man Friday, there's a cultural objective behind the exercise. For, for Robinson Crusoe, is winning the race. For, for the man he's calling Friday, it's exercise. Oh, I understand. So he keeps going back reporting to his village. This is what's going on. Now, end with this. Robinson Crusoe, eventually, he realizes that this guy is a human being. Not only <laughs> is he a human being, I like his way better than mine. So he asks Richard Roundtree, can I come with you back to your village? Roundtree is like, hmm, because what has happened? Now he's realizing this Western way, this competitive control, all this is poison. So then he comes back to the village and at the end, they have a meeting. Here's the white man 
in the middle of this circle of aboriginals, except they black. I love it. This is why I love it. And they're debating whether or not to let him stay. And so Crusoe says, but but uh, I love the children. They love me. He picks up a little black child. The black child loves me. I mean, the child loves me. I, I'll gather the children together every morning and I can teach them. Uh, our children, you know, I, I will teach them. Oh, one, so many wonderful things to learn. Richard Roundtree picks up a spear, remember, and he goes to kill the man. And the brothers is like, oh, hold him back, hold him back. He, he said, drop the spear. He drops the spear. And this is what Richard Roundtree says. He says, our children have no defense against his teachings. And he only teaches one thing. He teaches fear. This is the same Richard Roundtree that was in Shaft. He's playing fright. He said, the only thing these white people teach is fear. This white man teaches his fear. Then Crusoe says, oh, I only wanted to help. No, nah, you teach fear. Roundtree says, without its children, the tribe does not increase. Mm. He says, remember what happened? And then he says, he tells the people, the, his, 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 his family in the village, the elders, the children, everybody. He said, remember what happened when he showed up? He said, remember the dead? And then he shows these pictures of when he first landed, he's shooting at these black people who come to help him. And he shot a guy in the back. He shot, I don't give a damn whether that's Ferguson, whether it's New York, whether it's the streets of Atlanta. I don't give a damn whether it's Gaza, West Bank, or Tel Aviv. Killing is killing. It's got to stop. Nah. And he tells them, remember, remember. And then he says, remember the children. He says, let the tribe decide. What does the tribe decide? Robinson Crusoe got to go on the other side of the island. We ain't going to kill you, but you can't be in here because if you get a hold of these children, they're going to start listening like you. They're going to start going off track like you. And we might be in a point like we are right now in this time of war. And this is, again, why I'm so grateful we have this space to have this conversation. And we'll pick it up again Monday night in office hours in Nubia where we can puzzle through how to say nah as a we strong enough to overwhelm a world where they try to make you choose a side based on fear. And that's what's going on. Mm. Mm. Um, I would think at um, some point I would get tired. <laughs> you would get tired. Yeah. Um, but it seems like there's an infinite font of knowledge to be learned and you apparently are overflowing. This is why you were put here. I appreciate you. I thank, thank your mama and your daddy. And uh, all the ancestors, and yours, um, we wouldn't be here. Yeah, no, this is this is everything. I got so many notes, and I'm looking at all of these books uh, that I just uh, the the shaft book is like ninety nine dollars. <laughs> just oh, like no. yeah, from the can't library, can't get it, you know. No. But I'm got, I'm getting it because I want it in my library, and sure. I want to read. The, al you know, the algorithm, the algorithm. I, I suspect that at the Strand or at some of these used bookstores, even Salvation Army, there's some people going to show up with that book they bought it for a dollar. Because they're, they're the little trade paperbacks. Mm, mm. And Shaft Among the Jews is hilarious because it's got a whole thing about going in a diamond district. I mean, man, this is a white man writing this. <laughs> so it's like six or seven of the books. Yeah, I'm getting that one. I'm getting that one. Uh, and those of you in YouTube, you know, Let's freak the algorithm. Hit the like button. If there are a thousand plus people, there should be a thousand plus likes. Whether you like it or not, y'all like, y'all like stuff that ain't valuable you I'm know right. like this you know I'm let's right. be intentional it don't cost you nothing to hit the like button nope come on y'all nope. right. come, come on hit the like button and shit yeah. right we haven't said it in a long time yeah. i mean I, I try not to you know it's like 
I, I think people should just do things because it's the right thing to do. So you shouldn't have to even ask people to do things that are it's not painful, you know. Um, and, and, and you know, like voting, <laughs> yeah, you know, and even that is contentious at this point, which is so crazy to me that we live in a world where what if what is for your own good and eventually, and it's not even for right now. No, you're not voting for right now. Like all of the things, the Build Back Better is not going to benefit anybody for a couple of years. So the next president is going to take advantage of saying, "Oh, look at your community," but they didn't do it, right? It's, you know, the, the Trump system. gave out checks. Yes, that's the all. They right, Trump did more for us. Okay, who passed that legislation? But again, ignorance is what you said. But yeah. if, and part of it is, uh, you know, uh, Gerald Horn just published. A, he's got a couple of books coming out. He's going to be actually at San Kofa tonight. I think it's six. He just did this one. I'm going to show it to y'all. This is a new one. It's called um, Acknowledging Radical Histories, Conversations with Gerald Horn. It's a short book. He actually corresponded with a teacher, Chris Chris Steele. The book's about 180 pages, but it's conversations he had with Chris Steele over the arc of like four or five years where he's talking about all of his work. So he's talking about jazz and anti-fascism, the black press, uh, Du Bois, Paul Robeson, Shirley Graham, Du Bois, uh, Liberation of Kenya. In other words, tracking many of his 30 plus books now, 33, 34 books and counting. And I just mentioned it because one of the things we can do to understand how we overflow these, these little boundaries is to make ourselves aware of what's going on in the world. And we can see the commonality. We'll see what Jackie Woodson says. She said, you know, I talked to my children in the hotel room in Israel, then we in Palestine, and I couldn't forget those two little boys trying to get home to their mom and them. See, when people become human, not statistics, not enemies, not everybody Hamas or everybody is Hezbollah. You, it's hard for you to keep this killing up. People do get tired, Prof. Oh, come on, man. People do get tired. If you got any humanity in you, like a lot of those Israeli soldiers who organized this, you you got any humanity in you, you can't keep doing that. You can't keep doing it. We learned that lesson in Vietnam. Our uncles and, and fathers. and oh, my goodness. Generations yeah. ruined. And then to come back to be excoriated by your own your own uh, community, by your own country. Mm. They got into that horrible failed <laughs> conflict, didn't win. And then the people who fought and got injured orange, got hooked on heroin, got hooked on all kinds of things, lost their minds. Mm. People that they are still, you know, having nightmares about come back here to be trashed, you know, and we got veterans in the streets who are unhoused. We got people who fought for this country in Desert Storm, Desert Shield, all of these, you know, as you said, the cowards send people out, our family members, mostly who look like us on the front lines with the, the burning fields, with the, the horrible toxins that are in the cancer, come back here, no health care, can't even get, you know, medical marijuana, you know, giving them opioids. You know, it's, it's just you know, the insanity of it. Actually, it is, it is difficult. What you just did, Prof, is answer the question you raised at the beginning to the person that said, I'm not voting for a mass murderer, really. So you don't want these people to get health care. They didn't cho- they didn't sign up to go kill other people. They didn't sign up to get gassed and bombed and come back crazy. So you would rather put an administration in that will make sure they get nothing. Okay, that makes sense. You just answered the question you asked at the beginning. Yeah, but that's not the narrative. And the DNC and you know, whoever's in charge, they're not parroting Nope. The kinds of things that we need to know to be informed enough to make. So it's not just the media. It's the folk who, you know, go out and raise all these monies, these dollars yes. don't on the right campaigns. Don't don't put no money in Louisiana where, where this uh, Klansman MAGA Mike comes from. 
Don't put right. no money into Louisiana, but you, you're funding races that are already decided or you're funding Republicans because you'd rather uh, a, a nicer Republican get in in a place that's completely, instead of fighting gerrymandering. And gerry, it's, that's we, all have right, no leadership. we have no leadership. We went in. I mean, I know we we wrapping up. So I mean, I just mentioned, of course, we saw what Steve Jones, Judge Jones, was in about an appointee in the ruling. I started reading; it's about five hundred pages. The ruling he handed down in Georgia uh, day before yesterday, talking about you know you got to draw another black district, congressional district. You know, we see the battle they're having, of course, in South Carolina. I mean, if, so we have victories, even organized labor. Shout out to the U United Auto Workers and for I mean, they be able to get they got thirty percent raise. You know what I'm saying? I mean, it's I mean, it's not we 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 got some victories. You're right, you're right. And all the people, um, I'm not voting unless I get reparations. The president is not where that happens. That's in the in the legislative branch. And they have uh, what was it, John Conyers, who put it forward? You know, make sure you elect people to go to Congress to make sure that reparations are on the table as legislative. You know, it's a legislative bill, right? Doesn't isn't that the process? It's not the president. It's not even if they executive order, it can be overturned. That's not where you're getting reparations. You're getting no. it from your legislators. No, and, and Sandy Darity, I mean, he, he and Christian Mullen said it must be a federal level. It can't be by state. You've got the California Reparations Task Force that had to report. Of course, Gavin Newsom didn't act on it. There are a lot of moving parts in reparations, but I will say this, and I say this as a, a member, one, one time member of the National Coalition of Blacks Reparations Board. I'm still in the Cobra member, but I will say this. What do you think these people are going to give you? Huh? You talking about don't vote, no reparations. I mean, think about think about this. Just think about it very logically. Let's apply this very logically. You're basing the I'm not going to vote unless I get reparations claim. What you basing it on? If you're basing it on a moral argument, they owe us. Then you've opened your mouth and put your entire brain on display. In other words, you don't know nothing about how white supremacy and capitalism works. So if you're not doing that, you must be basing it on a pragmatic argument. In other words, you have some political power to be able to exact some price for what has happened to our people. And that is, as Professor Hunter, as you just said, as you just heard her say, that's a political process. So what you should be saying is, I will participate in the political process in order to get reparations, what you said. If you say, I ain't voting until they get reparations, what you've said is my master somehow will feel bad at some point and change their mind. And it doesn't matter who is in the Congress or who the president is. And what you've done is reveal the real limits and damage of miseducation. And on that note, mic drop. Love you. Love you. Uh, let's let's end the way we began yes. and uh, bring in our brother uh, who had a conversation about racism. This interview is pretty compelling. Uh, not just the dark liquor that people like, like the same <laughs> with the little sniffer. Uh, but this Love is... You. Yeah. Love I, you. This brother just... Mm. Uh, rest in power, sir. Richard Roundtree. Yes, indeed. Thank you, Dr. Carr. I love you. I love you, too. All right. Growing up in New Rochelle, New York, is, 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 you're in a tight bubble. It's, 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 uh, my parents are from an age when <laughs> you swept things under the carpet that didn't exist. As I said, my grandparents lived in Thomasville, Georgia, on my dad's side. And every other summer, we'd either go to Thomasville or Reedsville, North Carolina. Every other summer, we'd go to Reedsville or Thomasville. And on my mother's side of the family, 
an uncle had a tobacco farm. And on my dad's side of the family, my grandfather, who I'm named after, um, it's only 20 miles from Tallahassee. So my dad was proud of the fact I'm going to take the family to Tallahassee, Florida. My cousin, my brother, my sister, my mother, and dad. And we stop in this little um, grocery store. Today would be 7-Eleven type thing. And uh, my dad goes in the store, and we're in the car. And my cousin Terry sees this kid on a bicycle, white kid on a bicycle. And Terry gets out of the car and asks him, can he have a <laughs> ride on his bike? And the kid looks <laughs> my my cousin. We're in the car. We don't think anything of it. And the kid looks at my cousin like he's crazy. And Terry says, I, I, I just want to ride on your bike. And Terry, being Terry, grabs the bike and starts to get on it. And my dad runs out of the store, grabs Terry up, puts him in the car, and we hightail it out of the car. And when my dad got excited, <laughs> all his words would come together. We get back into Thomasville, and my dad's like, you, 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 you just don't know. We had no idea. In New Rochelle, where we lived, it, uh, when I was uh, uh, a preteen, we lived on Plain Avenue, which was a totally mixed area. We went to Barnard uh, Elementary School. We didn't know any of that. Johnny Rule and his brother Bobby, they had the first television. <laughs> on Saturday morning, we would go across the street to their house and all the kids, the Lone Ranger, that <laughs> all of that stuff. We didn't know any of that stuff. So going <laughs> to the South and then experiencing it with the uh, 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 Ebony Fashion Fair, and then I went to SIU, We played Missouri Mines. And driving there, the bus stopped. For food. And the black kids on the team couldn't get off the bus. And during the game, I
never heard the N word so much in my entire life. What? What was the question? <laughs> <laughs> 